tell you about a Bitcoin event in October, from the 5th until the 7th, this year, a couple of weeks away, at Station Berlin, Berlin Bitcoin Space, 2,000 guests, three days filled with magnificent content, lightning and payments, Bitcoin and energy, a consumer day. At the same time, there's another event happening. You can access it with the same ticket. Best of blockchain. Go orange, pull some people. They need it. You get a 21% discount if you pay in Bitcoin. And if you use the code HashRateUp, there's another 5% on offer. BerlinBitcoinSpace.io for more. So be there or be square. I'll see you there. Let's get on with the episode. All right, guys, this is Hashrate Up one more time, second episode since the rebranding. Welcome back. I hope you've had a good time listening to the last one. Going Nuclear was a definite um, highlight of, of my short podcast career. Um, today I'm joined by Ali Cheheras. No, I butchered that already. See, I told you. Give me the name one more time, Ali. Like I said, it's a common pronunciation. Cheherasas. Cheherasas. There you go. Ali Cheherasas. We will not cut that out. And the other guest that I'm today joined by is Mr. Troy Cross. Hello, Troy. Hi, Jesse. How are you guys doing? I'm doing great. It's 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 very hot here in Portland today, but uh, but I'm doing great. Yeah. Nice. How about you, Ali? Doing well. Thank you, Jesse. You guys are going to test my interviewing skills today a bit, since I think this is the first one where I've had two people, right? So there's going to be a challenge of addressing <laughs> addressing and, and giving the question to at least one person first before we cut each other off. Um, what's the current block height, Troy, at which we are recording? 803489, sir. All right. Um, we've got a 30-day hash rate of 382.9 and the hash price is currently at $71.12 per petahash per day. Um, I am pretty confident Troy doesn't need much of an introduction. Maybe Troy, give people a bit of um, feedback what you're currently working on um, so that they, up, that they are updated. Sure. Um, I'm a philosophy professor uh, at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. And that's where I'm currently uh, podcasting from in my office here. Uh, I teach philosophy and humanities, um, but I'm also a Bitcoiner and got pulled into this Bitcoin and energy space somehow and am a, a public learner, I would say. And I'm working on, on many things right now. Um, I, I, most pertinently, I am just preparing for class. I'm teaching. <laughs> I'm teaching very soon. So I'm working on my syllabuses. All right. Nice. Anything in the Bitcoin space that we should be aware of that you currently... Um, have your hands in? I, yes, I have my hands in a number of things. I advise a number of companies. I'm working with a couple of nonprofits. Um, one of them is I'm on the board at Free Madeira. I'm organizing the conference there, which uh, you know you should consider attending in March. I'm organizing the energy section of that conference. Another is I started a nonprofit myself, uh, educational nonprofit, to um, basically inspire and teach uh about bitcoin and that's in a very nascent stage and i'll say no more about it all right nice my wife and i have considered going to madeira just to have a look to potentially uh, spend some more time there um so maybe in march we'll come join you guys that'll be a perfect opportunity 
It's actually, yeah, if I can plug the conference for just a second. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, sure, <laughs> um, the, conference, uh, it, the conference is also about the island and visiting the island. So we're going to try to arrange it so that you can spend a week in Madeira, a vacation, and plan the vacation around the conference. And the conference itself is going to be uh, you know, incredible. We have all of the heavy hitters you would expect, but I hope we also have a novel take on on what a Bitcoin conference looks like um, in the energy section. I mean, I'm curating it. So as you can imagine, it's going to look a little bit different. Uh, we're, we're going to especially look at, at Bitcoin mining in Europe and, uh, and on islands and, uh, and with renewables. Uh, so it, it'll, 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 be a, it'll be different and it'll be really fun. I've been to Madeira. It is the Hawaii of the Atlantic. It's gorgeous, um, temperate. People are wonderful. The food is great. It's cl clean and, you know, it's just like a, an amazing vacation. Sounds good. One more conference, one more month uh, fits perfectly. I'll quickly use this opportunity to plug the other conference that's <clears throat> soon going to happen in, in October that I am actually organizing the Energy and Mining Day for. Um, also going to be super great. We're going to have lots of speakers, speakers that, that are already known, some, some heavy hitters, but also some new takes. I think that's, that's more important than ever. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely. What's your conference? It's called Berlin Bitcoin Space. But it's not my conference. I'm helping to, again, with, my, with the network that I do have, I'm trying to help out the conference to, to organize that industry day. Um, but yeah, that's enough conference talk. Ali, give us some uh, feedback about your, your person, some, some insight. Sounds good, Jesse. Uh, Ali Cheherasaz, I am an engineer by training, although I don't get to do as much of that these days as I like. Uh, my background uh, started in oil sands up in Canada. I switched over to renewables, primarily solar, which has been my focus for the last 14 years, uh, maybe 15 years. And I have been uh, involved in exploring solutions to integrate solar and Bitcoin mining together uh, over the last five years or so through my engagement with optimized infrastructure, which I will hopefully get to soon. Yeah, perfect. I mean, that's that's also the main ingredient of today's source, I guess. Um, let's talk about optimized infrastructure. What's the history around the company? When did you guys start? What's the what's the goal? Um, yeah. Sure. Uh, optimized infrastructure really started as a exploratory project for myself and my co-founders uh, in and around the timeline of call it the second or third Bitcoin boom cycle around 2017 uh, when we wanted to we decided to pay more attention to what's really going on in the space and what's happening with all things you know blockchain and energy and all the buzzwords that we're getting thrown around. Um, I won't bore you and the listeners with all the all the background, all the details. But uh, ultimately, what we um, realized was that you know, what really matters here, from the energy perspective, is Bitcoin mining, and Bitcoin miners are flexible resources. Uh, along along that same timeline, uh, sometime maybe even earlier, around 2014 or so, we had started to see um, sort of this. Um, solar value deflation that was coming head-to-head uh, -head, uh, against solar development around the world, primarily in California. Uh, what we had seen was 
the value of solar in the middle of the day was diminishing um, due to fixed demand on the grid and more uh, renewable to solar generation coming online during the day. So the solar industry was heading down this path of the more solar gets added, the worse it becomes after a certain point, after a certain grid saturation point for everyone. Um, and the stumbling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole for us started really with that energy side where we, uh, where we had this epiphany at the moment, which seems very obvious now, that we need to find a way to integrate Bitcoin mining into solar as a flexible resource. Uh, so that we can help create more value for solar and utilize this as another integration of these systems to be able to bring more clean energy to the world. A lot of complexities around the space, as you know, as I'm sure we'll get into, uh, but that was the sort of the aha moment and the, the reason behind why we stood up Optimize Infrastructure, uh, which is a, a software solution that helps project developers that want to deploy solar and bring that to the grids everywhere, find a way to fundamentally improve the economics of solar projects by integrating flexible loads like Bitcoin mining. All right, solid. Can I just quickly, before we jump jump into that, the algo, because I have some questions around it. Um, Troy, give me some feedback. How did you guys get connected? Oh, it's funny. Um, I When I came into the space, it was because I had an idea about how to hold Bitcoin in a carbon neutral way, uh, namely by mining the same percentage of all mining as you own of all Bitcoin and doing that mining in a carbon neutral way. And that's an idea I developed with Andrew Bailey at Yale and US. And we wrote up a little paper and I started doing podcasts. I became public as a Bitcoiner, started doing podcasts. The second podcast I did was with Dennis Porter and Ali and uh, Nima's co-founder of Optimize saw that podcast and reached out to me. In fact, I think they were the first people to reach out to me from basically the whole Bitcoin industry. They were quick. Yeah, and um, and you know they just explained the premise of their company, and I just wanted to introduce themselves. And I, I just liked Ali and Nima right away, and sensed a, a kinship and a common vision. And I was like, these are my people. I'm really glad they found me. It's an exciting idea. It's an exciting company. And uh, that, yeah, that's how we met. And we didn't start kind of working together for a long time uh, after that. But um, everybody I bumped into kind of needed to meet Ali and hear about <laughs> this product, right? Basically, everybody who's at the intersection of solar and uh, and Bitcoin needs some way of... Uh, need some way of integrating the two. They need to visualize uh, and see what difference uh, Bitcoin would make to their to their solar operation, or they need to see what solar power would look like for their for their Bitcoin mining. And they need to and they need to integrate them practically. And so so Optimize was sitting right at that intersection. And so just inevitably I kept introducing people to um, Ali or introducing Ali to people. <laughs> so that's that's how we that's how we met. All right. Ali, anything you want to add? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I'm smiling, think going back to this memory lane of how we met Troy and the conversations, interactions we had. Um, yeah, I would say from our side or my side, really getting into the Bitcoin space, coming from the solar industry side, uh, was a leap of faith. And 
I think I shared this with you, Jesse, in one of our previous conversations we had about the moment that I had this realization that the future of solar and the future of Bitcoin are tied together. It was a bit of a scary moment because at the time when we were exploring these topics, the, the message in the zeitgeist around Bitcoin uh, was riddled with a lot of FUD and you know, topics were going around the time around the Silk Road, for example. And that those topics that capture the headlines, captures people's imaginations, the public's imagination, and it does make it difficult for doing business and trying to even explore doing business. So the moment that we I guess, came across Troy and his messaging, we felt that he is somebody who is what I call a fellow pilgrim going down the same journey as we are. And I don't know where we're all going to end up. Um, I think to a great extent, the Bitcoin journey is still a project. No one knows if Bitcoin is going to be forever successful or not. We're all trying hard at it and we're pushing at it. Everybody's coming from different angles. It's probably the biggest uh, tent in the whole world that, that has brought different people into it. But uh, the connection that Troy and I had uh, around this concept of uh, how do we solve the energy, uh, call it, um, angle of Bitcoin uh, and really go one step further and take the bigger step, which is how do we utilize Bitcoin to solve the bigger energy transition that the world is trying to solve, uh, became the North Star for us. And uh, yeah, I've been very fortunate to have had Troy's company, his advice, all the work that he does, and uh, it's been uh, it's been a great kinship, as he said. Yeah, perfect. Thank you, guys. Um, so let, let let's get into optimize a bit more. Um, from what I've seen and I understand, it's basically an algorithm that decides in a smart manner from which source to power miners, right? So you have a, a grid tight solar power plant with uh, some battery storage, perhaps, and now it's all about producing every kilowatt hour that you can, especially when, when the grid cuts you off. We all know, I think, and the listeners at this point also, what benefits Bitcoin mining can have in an energy grid, right? All of that intermittent generation that we're going to add um, and are planning to add will have to have some type of flexible load connected to it, whether it be hydrogen or, or battery storage or Bitcoin miners, ideally. Um, those three technologies are currently sort of on the forefront. Um, in a country like like Germany, um, I say this quite often. There's a special special challenges around the, the the phase out of nuclear, right? As a base load, now we're firing up coal power plants again, and basically we are trying to electrify everything from transport to heating um, and all the other sectors that that are coupled to energy use that are currently um, fossilized or, or, or po powered with fossil fuels. So what does that mean? Does it means down the line we need to Probably 7x, I think, Troy, you mentioned a number there before, or 8x the, the generation from intermittent sources to, to cover everything. But at the same time, we also need the power to go somewhere when nobody wants it, right? I think that's the, that's the basic lay of the land. Um, and we see the effects already in Germany. I think we had power prices of minus 500 uh, euros per megawatt hour recently. Um, which basically means you get 50 cents per kilowatt hour if you if you charge your car extra on top. Um, 
But that has severe implications, especially also, and you can correct me on this if you have a different perspective, for investing uh, companies that, that are looking to finance these projects, right? They need to have uh, some sense of security that they can make their money back, right? And um, in the case of Germany, again, we had a power price of around 33 cents or 30 plus cents somewhere, and there's not much not much um, room to to basically subsidize all of this build out. What, what's your take on this? Maybe Troy go first and then, and then Ali after that. Well, I'm not sure what your question is exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, where, where does I, this go? I, I was like, following like, along with your speech, uh, quite, you know, I quite, quite agreeing with you. <laughs> um, where does it go? I, oh, God, you mean the big picture? Like, where does the electrification project go? Um, and and uh, you mean in terms of these three possible off-takers of excess electricity, batteries, hydrogen, and and miners. Yeah. Well, okay. First of all, let's just note the scale problem for, for all of these sources. None of them are big enough in the near future to scale, to actually match the amount of overbuild that is planned. Um, uh, the, 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 you know, the total, the total batteries in a, in a vehicle fleet in the U S if, if everything were electrified, all transport would give us something like four hours on the grid, which would certainly help, but um, uh, wouldn't meet our kind of seasonal fluctuations and larger needs for for, for, uh, for storage. Um, hydrogen is nascent and promising, but quite far off in terms of scaling, and it'll always be limited to some facilities and not others, just from the nature of the, the, the chemistry and infrastructure required. It's going to work some places and not others. And right now, the economics doesn't really work too well. Bitcoin mining is highly scalable, uh, portable, and available right now. Uh, but it also has a ceiling, which is the total block reward. Uh, the total block reward for the entire network. Maybe we're looking at, I don't know, $9 billion, something in that range right now for total Bitcoin mining uh, revenue per year. That's the total revenue. So if the energy spend is going to be maybe 50% of that, something like that. This is a very rough estimate um, because uh, after after the margins, 70% of minor expenses roughly right now are energy on average. So we're, we're, we're like, they can, miners can buy maybe, I don't know, maybe, five billion dollars worth of energy total if they're lucky right so that and we have a having nine months off um so it, absent a price increase the the energy budget for mining the total energy spend is going to be like a, a few billion dollars worldwide and that's just not a lot uh that's just not that's just not a lot so the big picture is um we we are we don't have the kind of flexibility that we need to uh to solve the solar deflation problem and to absorb the excess energy that we're going to be creating in an aggressive scenario of electrification and of course there are other you know there are other uh ways that we could improve the situation better interconnection for instance But that also doesn't look to be happening in time. And this is just me as an outsider, okay? I'm not an energy professional. But what I see is everything kind of getting worse on the uh, on the solar deflation side because we have incentives to build out 
So the incentives are there. We're gonna we're gonna create the generation. The cues for interconnection are are like un, unbelievable, actually quite <laughs> quite uh, shock, shocking. Uh, the the uh, the delays there. Interconnection is not going to rescue us from this problem. Nuclear is not going to rescue us because it's just going to take too long in the in the short term. Even if it even if it does everything that your previous guest promises it will do, and um, I'm I'm pro nuclear and I think that's great. But in terms of this problem, uh, I I don't I don't see anything as a silver bullet that solves this problem, including Bitcoin. Right? It's just that like. Bitcoin, the thing that's holding Bitcoin back from from going in and buying uh, buying up uh, cheap cheap power is just the the small size of Bitcoin itself. You know, its uncertainty of price, and uh, and you know, but otherwise, it's very well suited. These machines can go anywhere. Uh, if I can just can I riff for just a minute here? Go ahead. Uh, uh, the 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 overarching feature of bitcoin mining as a as a an economic vehicle that strikes me is its sensitivity to power costs uh and this wasn't always the case you know in 20 in 2015 in 2013 the primary expense of mining was not power it was the machines it was asics and even during the recent um boom in bitcoin's price uh, when China banned mining, the the average miner was not spending uh, the majority of their the more majority of their expenses were not uh, was not energy it was ASICs. But as ASICs have uh, have been produced and mass and met the demand for ASICs, um, what what matters now is I mean hash rate rises, uh, hash rate rises, uh, the the hash price falls. And energy is the differentiator between miners. And that's the situation we are finally in now, uh, where, where cheap energy is everything for, for a Bitcoin miner. And so we have really a technology that is, uh, by design, going to seek out and use the cheapest energy. If it doesn't, uh, it, it's going out of business very soon. On the one hand, we've got this technology designed to use cheap energy and only cheap energy. And on the other hand, we have what you're pointing out, this broader problem that's arising for re intermittent renewables, which is they don't have a buyer for energy much of the time, and that's uh, hurting their economics. So th this is like a perfect pairing. This is what Ali saw a long time ago. Sorry, I'm just summarizing what Ali saw a long time ago. Uh, but it's a perfect pairing of a problem and a solution which uh, which make economic sense. And the thing standing in the way of working that out has been, you know, temporary disruptions in the market, like like ASIC prices being, you know, shooting to the moon during a bull run. Or it's been, and this is the thing that I've, of course, run into throughout my time in this space, attitudes and beliefs that are entrenched, that this can't work. And I mean from both sides of this, because there's kind of a cultural disconnect between Bitcoiners and Bitcoin culture and people who are really into intermittent renewables. <laughs> Those two groups uh, uh, see themselves as opposed. Or maybe I shouldn't say see, but I should say saw, because I do think it's changing. But I think uh, I, I think people who go into this renewable space generally, they are 
somewhere in the back of their head concerned about climate change, even if it's not like at the forefront of their business, they are concerned about it. And that's partly why they're doing what they're doing. And a lot of Bitcoiners have been beaten over the head with the message uh, that Bitcoin is causing climate change and that it needs to be eradicated in order to solve climate change. Right. And so the Bitcoiners that remain are the stubborn few who are like, I'm going to mine anyway. <laughs> you know, I like Bitcoin anyway. Uh, and, and so neither of those groups is positioned to see the other one in a in a constructive, friendly way that we could possibly work together. And you know what I mean? See eye to eye. Instead, they're, they're in this oppositional relationship. And I think really, I mean, I'm not an engineer. I'm not Ali. He's going to jump in and say things correctly, technically. But what I could see was a cultural problem that was creating an artificial barrier to a natural meeting of, uh, of, of, of a problem and a solution or, you know, a, a, the problems of one business solved by the needs of another business. Right? I could see that and I could see the blockage to it. And I guess that's been a lot of my, my journey here is actually trying to get other people just sympathetic enough to listen and think constructively and creatively about uh, uh, about working together when they would see themselves as naturally opposed. Ali, do you want to jump in and then maybe also lead into Optimize um, a little bit more and talk about, well, actually confirm or deny whether I summed up the algo correctly earlier um, and go into projects that you currently have uh, that are in development? Sounds good. Yeah, I'll give you my... Uh my story of the world, or at least the story I tell myself that keeps me going. Um, and the, I guess the punchline here for me is that Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin is working itself through this end result, which is answering the use case for Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. And I think it's becoming over time through these changes and evolution we're going through, Uh, it's finding itself exactly where it needs to be, proving its worth and value, which uh, fits quite nicely in the energy transition conversation. So to get there, I'll, I'll maybe break down and answer your question uh, into three parts. I'll, there's the energy transition, big picture. There's how solar fits in this energy transition uh, journey, and then how optimized fits within the solar uh, journey itself. So I'll walk down through this, this three-layer cake here. Energy transition, as it's a very big concept. I think you were, Jesse, touching on a lot of those points. Troy was sharing his views as well. There's different technologies, different asks, different desires. Uh, really, the way I look at the world through this energy transition lens is that you've got your three Ps. You've got the, the physics of it, you've got the politics of it, and you've got the people that are involved in it. And physics of it really is about supply and demand, and it's driven by technologies and our use cases for, for energy. Um, it's, it has a geographic component to it um, and a time-based component to it. Politics of it is different regions, different continents, different countries have their own politics, their own desires, uh, what politicians or elected officials, we should say, ask for in order to advance their agendas for their nations, uh, which is also driven by the people, what people actually want as their own choice, as their own solutions, 
NIMBYism drives a lot of what we do, uh, NIMBYism being not in my backyard. Uh, there's the opposite of that these days, which is YIMBYism, with a yes in my backyard, people wanting certain things. Some people want small modular reactors in the backyard. Some people do not want to do anything with nuclear. Same thing with solar, same thing with hydrogen. Energy transition is going to be this messy process that's going to be with us for a very long time. Uh, I think all of our careers will be involved in energy transition and a lot of what we do in society will be, will be touched by it. Um, one thing is for certain, and I like this quote from, uh, from Sean, uh, one of our allies, and, and uh, uh, I think he's been on your podcast before, Jesse. He talks about the energy transition is a combination of yes and statements. There's going to be a lot of technologies involved. There will be nuclear, there will be coal, there will be natural gas, there will be batteries, hydrogen, Bitcoin. It's an and, and, and. There is no silver bullet solution. There is no one technology that will solve it all. So I think that's the story I tell myself. And I think that's the, um, what largely we see energy professionals understand. Now, different people through different interest groups will promote one version of it versus the other. What I have to say and share here is that how I see solar fits in the energy transition space and does it have a role to play and where does it go for, from where it is today to where I believe the world is headed. And with solar, uh, this is a story I tell my investors, my customers, uh, my employees, which is my journey through solar, if I were to break it up, I would say it's like a play that has three acts. Um, act one is sort of the introduction. Act two is where a lot of action happens. Act three is where all the heroes have learned their lessons and they go on uh, to the next phase. I would say act one for solar was really us proving that solar is a commercially compelling technology, uh, a source of generation that can attract capital, deploy assets, and generate electricity that is cost competitive with other conventional energy sources. Back in the 2000s, sometime we reached that milestone uh, and we used to track this metric of uh, LCOE, levelized cost of energy, electricity, and that was the metric. Like That was the goal in the startups in solar I used to work at and I was on that price. Can we get to an LCOE that beats coal? That would be goal number one. We crossed that number sometime in late 2000s and started to cross more and more numbers with natural gas and wind and other technologies. Um, then, we, then we entered the next act of solar, which was whether or not we all knew it, I learned that through the process myself, which is there is a natural physical ceiling for how much solar can be deployed in any geography, any grid. That ceiling is the grid saturation point, which is defined by the peak daytime demand when you have all of your load, which is generally inflexible, load on any grid largely stays constant at, you know, at various hours of the day. It, the fluctuations that happen are because of outages or uh, weather events that are infrequently becoming more frequent and are like, you know, Troy's you know, heat case right now is going through, the heat wave is going through in Portland. But largely the daytime demand is quite stable and it doesn't change much because you really can't change demand that fast, that frequently. 
most demand is inflexible or is driven by human behavior or industrial operations around business hours, around labor times. Solar can only fulfill so much of that daytime peak demand until it's fully met. And beyond that point, because the, the electric grid cannot store electricity, every other electron that's generated has to be curtailed or wasted or dissipated in some other way. That's why if you look at, for example, in California, starting in 2012, uh, but definitely starting 2014, you saw curtailments of wind and solar take place because we were reaching that grid saturation point in, you know, in early spring day hours uh, where the weather is cool, we have a lot of sun, there's not that much load on the grid, and operators have to shut down and ask for solar to get curtailed. And that curtailment has only gone up year over year. And that story is not just a California story. It's in every geography, in every state. Uh, NREL, uh, National Renewables Energy Labs, produces a report every year and it shows the curtailments for renewables. And they have some, they have some very interesting data points that basically shows in every grid, in every geography, once you reach somewhere around the 10% grid penetration of solar, you start to have this curtailment need which leads itself to this solar value deflation, which is in simple terms, in the middle of the day, prices are coming down, the grid's getting clean, so there is no more use case for solar in the middle of the day. That phase two, act two of solar, was basically the rush that we had to go through from late 2000s to somewhere in the middle of 2010s to get to that point. And we got there through a lot of combinations of feeding tariffs, net energy metering, uh, renewable portfolio standards, incentives, tax credits, you name it, everything was thrown at solar to get us there. And we got there. And we have now entered Act 3, the next phase for solar, which I believe it's the long-term forever act. Uh, and if we don't do it the right way, I think solar is in trouble and growth of solar is going to be curtailed in developed nations primarily in the US and in, in Europe who are pushing for this growth, but without an ability for us to find use case for solar energy, we're not going to be able to just keep plugging away into the grid. Uh, now today, it's serendipitously the one year anniversary of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act here in the US. Um, a lot of incentives was brought on for batteries, for hydrogen. That means a lot of solar developers were now able to co-locate their solar plants with these other technologies in order to either load shift how much solar gets generated or put their surplus solar into other solutions in order to be able to monetize their production of electricity and be able to return capital at a reliable rate. This is a US story. Globally, the rest of the world also wants solar. There's a use case for solar, but we know we're going to be hitting the same problem everywhere we go. So globally, we, could, we need a solution to be able to help solar grow at a steady rate in the use cases in places that you know, has an application and there's a desire for it by, by people, by politics, uh, because we know the physics of it is there and we can reliably forecast its production. We just need to reliably forecast its return. Bitcoin happens to be the first and probably still is the only global market for electricity where electricity is 
by design a local commodity, a local market. So if we have the sun that's a 24-7 resource going around the planet, if we have the Bitcoin network that's a 24-7 buyer of electricity, can we find a way to match these two to create a use case for solar in this energy transition? And that's the next layer of the cake, which is the job that Optimize is here to solve, which is for locations and projects where solar development is desired and it solves a use case, can we co-locate Bitcoin mining with solar in order to create, again, a compelling case for capital to deploy against projects reliably so we can produce reliable returns to the investors? And these projects vary in size. They can be utility scale. They can be residential. They can be off-grid. They can be combined with a combined heat and power type solution, uh, which is where Bitcoin is ultimately heading, where it's filling in its what seems to be its destiny in the energy transition, which is to be the flexible buyer of electricity, the producer of free heat. It's one application of it that is really fitting it itself really well and helps its own journey to be completed, while other technologies, other generation sources get to pair up with it. So for us, Optimize is really here to solve that problem for solar, create this long-term growth for it that fits in a portion of the solar industry. The entire solar industry does not need Bitcoin to survive. There are many other use cases for it, but there's a portion of it that can be helped with Bitcoin. And all that together fits within a portion of the energy transition that we're on. There's um, sweet spots starting to emerge. Um, when you just mentioned the last bit, the, the company in, in Germany, TerraHash, um, came to mind where now you, you're starting to see sort of the first um, possible areas where, where this this makes sense, the free heat generation and the offtake of otherwise curtailed energy, where now, you know, companies receive 1.7 cents per kilowatt hour um, when they feed into the grid, right? But they pay an amount of nine cents or whatever it is for, for producing heat per kilowatt hour. And now all of a sudden it does make sense to instead you know, power the miner with the electricity instead of feeding feeding into the grid um, and then producing the heat. But then you get into other issues such as regulation, you know, having to forecast how much power are you going to feed into the grid the next day. If you don't adhere to that schedule, you get immediately hit with, with punishments, which make the whole thing un, un, unfeasible again. Um, yeah, but but I'm, I'm starting to, to see what... what um, Optimize is, is trying to do. One other thing that, that came to mind was the demand response. There was sort of a period, and again, maybe Troy, you can you can uh, um, get into it here again. There was sort of a period I felt like where, where the idea of um, consumer behavior and controlling consumer behavior via price and smart metering and smart devices was a lot more prominent than it is today. I don't know if that's the same in, in the US. But I feel like at least in Europe, that's kind of been not, it's not being ignored, but it's definitely taken a, a hit in, in popularity when it comes to stabilizing, stabilizing the grid that side. What, what does it look like uh, in, in North America? I, I can't speak to the whole, you know, country and how it's, it, it, how it's being perceived, but I'll say I still hear a lot of hype about it. Okay. Um, and at the same, you know, maybe we haven't experimented with it on as big of a scale. So we're at an earlier stage of finding out how limited um, 
this source of flexibility is. Um, I, I know for people who have run those programs, they find them tricky. You know, consumers ahead of time might be willing to sign up for a contract with cheaper electricity that gives up some um, some some freedom to to use power at at peaked times. But when it actually happens to them, and their uh, their hot water isn't available, or the heating or cooling in their house is at a different time than they want it, then they don't necessarily react well. Uh, and kind of pilot programs that are done are you know they kind of select uh, individuals who are adventurous and early adopter types, and they might be more, more willing to do that. But I don't see all of the U.S. Uh, you know, vigorously adopting that sort of thing happily. I don't see them doing it happily. I mean, I, mean, I think these programs are great for what it's worth. This is a great market solution. Um, we need flexibility. You need cheap power. Why don't you give up some uh, some control over when you have power and let us, you know, you set, you set your dryer or your washing machine at night and let us control when it happens during the night. And the same for your hot water heater and let's use like AI to make you the least unhappy that, that we can. Right. I mean, this will happen. And, um, uh, the question is just a twofold. One is how much scale is available there? How much flexibility can we find? Uh, and I guess two is what's the psychology going to be like, how are people going to take it? I, I, I spent some time in South Africa. I told you this before, where we had power that was available only like, you know, maybe four or six hours a day if, if you were lucky and some days it was more and you were happy. And, and there, there was a, um, I guess an acceptance of, uh, intermittent power. And, uh, from that perspective, if you, if you got less intermittency and cheap power, people would be pretty happy if that's what they're used to. But the U S we're used to cheap power that is also always there and, and to hear people inside the energy companies talk about brownouts, uh, they're mortified. <laughs> oh, they're mortified. Yeah. It's always so, easy. Uh, it's always easy uh, to go I, up, right? But coming yes, at, when once people have had access to constant power, it's very hard to get the, to make them adjust to not having. Yeah. It. So for me, this is like a market question. Well, how much cheaper would your power have to be? And. Uh, how much more, another way of putting it is, how much more are you willing to pay for that constant guarantee of uptime, right? So I don't think it's like a dead idea by any means. I think it's going to grow. I think it's going to happen. And I'm all in favor of it. But I don't think, it, I think the question is, uh, how much of a silver bullet is it? And I think it's not a silver bullet. There will be a lot of angst and a lot of anger. And, you know, just take our political situation in the U.S. Um they want to take away my gas stove and now they want to control when I can use power, right? It won't be put in terms of, Oh, I have an option to give up, uh, this, this constant availability of power for cheaper power. It'll be put as I'm being coerced by the super high price of constant uptime power. I'm being coerced into giving up my freedoms. And I see that as a cultural flashpoint and you know, we'll rally and cry in a in a rebellion against the intermittent renewable sources. So it's kind of like we might gain some flexibility for for the grids that way, but at the cost of dooming the project of using intermittent sources at all. 
We are. Um, before I hand it back over to you, Ali, I'm just want just one more follow up question. Are you starting to see an emergence of electricity providers and service um, providers that that give people access to flexible rates? So we're starting to see in Europe these these first companies that now offer their customers um, spot market rates so they can benefit from negatively priced energy. Ali. Yeah, let me uh, answer broadly is yes. Uh, and to tie to this conversation at, uh, about demand response, um, you asked about how impactful can it be, how wildly will it be, or how widely will it be deployed? Um, and this makes me think about, again, going back to the three Ps of physics, politics, and, and people, uh, different geographies will react differently to this, and they'll choose demand response or fight against it, depending on really their culture. There's a good book called um, Rule Makers and Rule Breakers I read two years ago. It's about how tight and loose cultures wire our world. Um, and it's really about certain geographies, certain cultures uh, are rule followers and are individualist. Some are uh, statist, nationalist, and follow the, the bigger uh, rules of, of the land. And you can divide countries up that way, and you can even divide uh, inside the country, different states that way. And in this book, there's a lot of good examples about the U.S., which is very much worth reading and reading at it through the lens of the energy conversation. And I can give you the example uh, in the U.S. between two states, California, Texas. Uh, California is a re-regulated market, uh, so it's twice regulated. Um, Texas is generally viewed as a more of a free uh, energy market. There are exceptions within Texas, but by and large, if you are within the aircraft territory, you're viewed to be in the free market side. Um, caveat that given the recent events in Texas, there is regulations, programs coming in uh, in order to put some boundaries around it to protect the ratepayers and consumers. But putting that to the side and focusing on the question of demand response, um, in California, we have regulated utilities and rate schedules that people pay for are decided by the California Public Utilities Commission. And over a decade ago, the most expensive cost of electricity when we rolled into the time of use electricity costs, which we didn't used to have, it used to be flat pricing or tiered pricing. Then we went to time of use, which is depending on the hour of the day, you pay different costs for electricity. It used to be that middle of the day was the most expensive cost of electricity. Uh, fast forward to now, middle of the day is the cheapest cost of electricity in California. And you are given these blocks of time, and those are promoted publicly in TV ads and billboards. Uh, today in Northern California, PG&E, which is a utility that operates something like 18 million customers or something, um, uh, promotes that 4 to 9 p.m. electricity is expensive. That's the, the duck curve problem we're dealing with in California. And you are encouraged to not use power at that time. And the technology that we have, um, people have deployed smart thermostats and they participate in demand response events and they willingly choose to let that thermostat get dialed up or down to help save them money. And that comes down to the people. People here choose to live in California in the regulated electricity market. 
where through availability of technology and uh, promotion of how we want to use electricity in the state, they participate in these programs. There's also real-time pricing programs that are being tested out for commercial industrial customers to see if they would be willing to jump into a real-time uh, wholesale market tied uh, pricing schedule, which by wholesale market, it really just comes down to temperature and how temperature forecasts decide on price of electricity tomorrow to see if commercial industrial customers will respond to these programs. They're all given a one-year bill protection program so that basically if you sign on to their real-time pricing program and over the first year your electricity bill on an otherwise available tariff or schedule would have been cheaper, they make you whole. But it's enough to like get the get some interest started to see if if consumers will respond to it. Now go to Texas where it's a free market. Uh, power is delivered through wires that are managed, but the electricity itself is you can buy and, and participate in it from anybody you want in the marketplace, again, generally speaking. And there are some upsides to that. There are some downsides to that. But in that state, people are choosing to have a contract or a relationship primarily with a private party versus in California, it's with a regulated utility. And that's the choice that people make over there. Technologies are the same. Uh, you know, the general use of energy industry is, you know, make some changes here and there, but we're all basically making the same electrons and using the same electrons to power our homes and businesses. But how it's being deployed in Texas, this journey is going on in Texas is very different than it is in California. And that really just comes down to the choices people are making. And in, Cal in Texas recently, uh, Tesla launched their um, power or electric program where they're essentially a uh, load serving entity. And if you're a customer of Tesla and you have a power wall installed, uh, they actually enable you to participate in demand time or demand response programs where they give you a share of the upsides from the export of solar and battery power that you have and you've generated to the grid should ERCOT call for it and there's money to be made. And there are people that are making you know, five bucks uh, per kilowatt hour at you know, a couple of hours from the power that they self-generate on their rooftop and they had stored in their batteries back to the grid. And I think the split that Tesla is offering is in 90-10, which is a pretty interesting proposition to make to private citizens that own solar and battery to participate in the grid events. So that's two sides of it in, in just one country. So take the rest of the world. I mean, South Africa, you just talked about, it's a whole different world, right? There's power outages there, load shedding, which is, you know, a way to maintain the grid right now and avoid chaos to take place in society at the broad scale. Yeah, I mean, th th this conversation beautifully highlights, and this is probably also the reason why we why we keep getting sidetracked, um, how difficult it really is. There's all these technologies, all these yes and statements. There's different um, consumer behavior. There's different regulation. There's different innovation, right? All of these different ideas sort of commingle, and at the end of the day, we have to <laughs> have to um, make a transition to to a wholly, completely differently set up energy system that's not built for you know not not set up this way the way we're trying to build it bottom up instead of top down right it's complete um complete shift south africa is probably an example of where you don't want it to go right when when the political political system is is highlighted by by heavy corruption 
right? Um, you don't want your citizens to have to install an app that tells them when power is off. But I have to say, and the, the listeners probably roll their eyes right now because I probably talk about this uh, every single time, it beautifully highlights also, and that's maybe a, a positive aspect, what individuals will do, right? Should the government fail in supplying constant access to electricity, those that can afford it are now turning around and, and saying, okay, then I'll just take care of it myself. I'll get an inverter, I'll get some solar, I'll oversize it, I'll get a battery, and you can screw yourself, right? And, and I'll do things my own way, even if that means for 10% of the year, I don't have power but then I don't have to deal with your nonsense, right? Um, so yeah, super interesting uh, discussion, but, but maybe let's, <laughs> let's, try, let's try this again. Let's try to focus on, on op op optimize a bit more. Um, Ali, go into the, the projects that you guys currently have in development, and then I would like to talk a bit more about Bitcoin mining, especially with solar and play a bit of uh, devil's advocate, if I may. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so I would say... In a uh, grand vision, uh, a project that we are working on and advancing is what we call Project Mitra. And this is our, uh, call it the North Star for where we like to reach, which is uh, ultimately to enable the creation of a uh, Bitcoin hash rate product that's providing steady supply 24-7 from Bitcoin mining operations that are in part or wholly powered through solar operations. And the thesis here goes back to what I shared at the top of the episode, which is the sun goes around you know, all day. We have solar resources available on the planet all day. Solar works everywhere. And we are heading towards a world where in many applications of solar pairing that with bitcoin mining helps increase the returns for those solar projects so in theory if we are able to orchestrate and stitch together the hash rate that's produced by solar in different time zones across the planet every hour of the day we should be able to produce a bitcoin hash rate product that buyers can purchase uh, strips of or forecast of it that they know is coming from solar and it's available uh, on an ongoing basis. That's sort of like the grand vision of where we would love to see uh, our efforts help you know, create this product. Specifically on projects, we're supporting a number of developments uh, in different applications. Uh, there are commercial projects that are we're working with building architects that are standing up uh, new infrastructure. They want to integrate solar as part of the power generation on the behind the meter uh, deployment. And they're evaluating uh, deploying Bitcoin mining as a source of monetizing the electricity and getting the free heat to offset the building heat. This is on a commercial level scale. And um, the, the design, the analysis we're supporting with is what's the right size solar and Bitcoin mining operation that yields the highest optimal results. Uh, so that's one application of it. Another one is in utility scale solar projects in the US. You heard um, Troy talk about the interconnection queues. Uh, almost everywhere in the country, 
new generation is being plagued by high cost and long time interconnection uh, called application process. Just the process of applying to get connected to the grid, understanding how much capacity you can get, how much will it cost you to actually get power to the grid is a multi-year effort. We're working with a project developer who has secured uh, enough land to deploy 50 megawatts of solar. Uh, this project is in Illinois, and we're helping them divvy up the parcels to figure out how best to maximize the capital returns from deployment of solar on this 50 megawatt land, which requires you to break up the parcels into multiple sub-parcels to put them into different programs, different tariffs, different markets some on the utility called wholesale markets, some on our retail. But what we are seeing is that there is a portion of this land that uh, we can actually enable with Bitcoin mining that can help us deploy construction capital more efficiently by building the project at once in a cheaper rate than otherwise you would on a separate parcel and separate timeline. And by integrating Bitcoin mining to a portion of this project, we can showcase higher returns and faster uh, return of capital than you otherwise would without it. So that's another application we're helping with. Uh, alongside that whole um, utility scale type opportunity, there are projects that are either in construction or in operation, and they have some amount of surplus solar generation, either it's merchant capacity uh, or under, under contracted capacity that you're showcasing to the project owner operators. If you were to deploy Bitcoin mining alongside here, what kind of returns you could see, how would we protect your downside, what your upsides look like. And then the third category of projects are these uh, same applications we just talked about, about uh, type of deployments in South Africa, which is figuring out how to integrate uh, appliance size Bitcoin mining ASICs in an application of solar and battery for residential size where you can have a replicable and scalable model where you can enable the homeowner that's deploying solar and battery for the needs that they have now but by adding bitcoin mining to soak up the surplus power that is made available because of either lack of export capability to the grid or because of the outage that has happened and the battery capacity is fully utilized Putting in a Bitcoin miner that fits that right size equation could help increase the returns for those projects. And that's another venture that we're evaluating and exploring. I've talked to you about it, as you know. And uh, that's another solution where we see Bitcoin mining can help deployment of solar. The current state, and, and that's why that's why I come in maybe a bit of uh, uh, as a devil's advocate. The current state of mining is is earmarked by. Um, big data centers that run 24-7 have enormously cheap access to power um, and run, again, all the time and want to run all the time. The problem I see with mining off of solar is that you're still dependent on what the grid price is, whether the project will be feasible or not, right? In, in a country like South Africa, probably I would say like the, the grid price is somewhere around $15 cents. Um, and then you always have the issue of, of uptime if you're not running 24-7. Uh, if you have off-grid solar, that's maybe gives you an uptime of 35% or something like that. And I would argue it's very hard to compete 
against these other miners that mine off of nuclear at two cents. And th their share of the pie will always grow faster, diminishing your, your returns in, um, in return. So how do, how do we square that circle? Is it, is it possible to, to somehow do solar mining um, in a jurisdiction where grid price is not maybe anyway super cheap and uh, we're not using solar mainly to um, get the blended rate from the grid and from the solar down. What's sort of needed to make that to make that work, Ali? Sure. So the story I told myself on the, the journey of Bitcoin mining, it also has these three chapters. Chapter one was mining on your computer and your GPUs and that era. Chapter two was let's go big Know, build the biggest data centers, right? Uh, to get cost of capital down, to get economies of scale. Uh, mining equipment was rare and, and supply was, was tight. Chapter three is, is where we are uh, focusing on. And it's this future of Bitcoin mining, which can have a mix of um, participations. And it could be there will be some who figure out how to still deploy really big Bitcoin mining operations. Uh, that could be a future for it. Um, there's the future of what we've seen, which is you know, landfill gas and flare mining, where you know, there are almost an abundant number of wells around the planet that are leaking methane or natural gas. You can go put a off-grid miner there and mine there for some time and until you fully cap that well. There's the applications of integrating them into buildings for combined heat and power, which is going to get more and more created. And for solar, uh, really the, the story here is less about can you be a Bitcoin miner with solar and beat the nuclear developer or the coal developer that has a coal power plant. It's a global play and whatever unfair advantage you can get to find your electricity source to mine Bitcoin, that's up to you. You're competing with those people. but by and large, um, focusing solar on beating everybody else is not necessarily the play. The play we see is how does Bitcoin mining help more solar to get deployed? Because there is solar deployment, there is appetite for it, there's, there's use case for it, as we've talked about. But can we increase the returns for those projects so that we end up bringing in more capital into these types of deployments that integrate mining as a portion of it so that the returns are accretive. The, the story I tell is back in the day when we were uh, first seeing the commercial use cases of battery storage, the way those developments took place was that we were going to projects that had existing solar and we modeled and added a proposal for co-developing or co-locating a battery storage device next to a solar plant or connected to it. Once we got past that, that stage and capital started to understand and get comfortable with deploying and putting money behind battery storage, which has a different tenure than the solar assets do. Like generally, solar projects are underwritten for 20 to 30 year life cycles. Batteries used to be five and 10. Now we're seeing 15 year warranties and economic useful life. It's still a different tenor, but the current capital climate and demand for the product has made it so that now every solar developer is also a battery developer. 
and you can't really do solar without battery. The two are connected. I believe Bitcoin mining is going to go down the same path. What you see right now is beyond the data center world, you're seeing co-location of mining with generation assets. I think at some point within this decade, we will see the independent power producers, um, the project developers, developing projects with the combination of solar, battery, Bitcoin mining together. Um, we have some challenges to solve, like DC powering of the mining versus going down the AC-DC route. There's some optimization that can be had. People are working on these. Uh, supply chain for chips needs to change. Uh, for solar applications, it may not necessarily make sense for a residential project to deploy the same box that gets shipped out of Bitmain. But those chips can be broken down and we can have smaller size wattages for a residential application, for example. So there is a foray of solutions that are coming that uh, enable solar to play in the Bitcoin mining space, but not to do Bitcoin mining any favor. But it's the other way around. It's for Bitcoin mining to do solar a favor. Can I uh, can I jump in? Of course, yeah. Um, a couple. Of, uh, first of all, your question, your question rehashes sort of my own journey with solar and Bitcoin. First of all, being excited about it, thinking solar's got problems that Bitcoin can help to solve. It can provide that that buyer that solar needs. Um, and looking at the solar cost curves and predicting that solar's gonna be the cheapest power in the world and thinking, ah, Bitcoin is inevitably gonna migrate to solar. That was like stage one of my journey. And then stage two was, uh, I guess the highlight was reading this article in Brains Magazine, which is now part of their book on mining, where they do the math on even if you had free power, but you had very low uptime for Bitcoin mining, you couldn't pay off your machine. Uh, you, 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 it's because your machine is depreciating so fast and you had to pay $12,000 for it or whatever it was at the time, your S19. Uh, even with free power, with only operating, say, five hours a day, you don't, you don't generate enough Bitcoin to pay back uh, your, your debt on the machine. And then, uh, okay, that was stage two. Stage three was thinking through it further. Okay, what ultimately is making these machines so expensive? Uh, there's two two explanations. One is they're very expensive to produce. Um, they they just it costs a lot to get the the chips manufactured to to do the research for the chips and so on. And the other is no, there's actually a shortage during a Bitcoin price boom, and the world is basically the reason that these machines are so expensive is that the we don't have the supply chain. Uh, elasticity to match the demand of mining worldwide because people can print money with these things very profitably on basically any energy at the time this article was written. So uh, I came to think it was not the cost of production that was driving the price of ASICs, but the worldwide competition in a supply chain crisis and during a fast run-up of Bitcoin. And that was true. What has happened to ASIC prices since is they've fallen from whatever they were at that time, 13000 12000 down to like $2,000 for the same machine. And that wouldn't be happening uh, if it were above the cost of production. So I don't know where the cost of production is, but it's low. And the other thing that's happened is 
that the improvements have slowed in the rate of ASIC development. So that the, the, the gains, the incredible gains that a lot of Bitcoiners like to talk about in efficiency of ASICs has dramatically and steadily slowed. And that increases the useful lifespan of a machine. So rather than needing to pay back the machine in you know, a year and a half, uh, or whatever Alex DeVries says, it's 1.3 years is all you've got to mine with the machine and get your no, CapEx. Throw back. it away after but that, right away. Throw, they're all in the landfills, yes. Um, it, actually, you maybe have maybe three and a half years or four years, uh, depending on how you use it. So that, that timeline helps. The machines have dropped you know, five, six fold since that article was written in price. And it's not just some happenstance of, the, of history. It, it happened because it was inevitable. It, it, think about it this way. To Ali's point, when you shouldn't compare, you, you, suppose you're on you're on a suboptimal uptime for your uh, for your mining operations. Does that mean you're doomed? Supposing price is equal. Suppose you know you have two cents and another miner has two cents, uh, and you have the same amount of uh, you you have re- same amount of, of, of uh, uh, same rate but a different amount of uptime. Are you doomed? Well. Not necessarily. Those ASICs will be will be sold to you as long as you can make money on them until they meet the cost of production. Like they'll keep making more ASICs until the price of ASICs hits the cost of production. As long as you're a willing buyer, even if you don't have the cheapest uh, or the most highest uptime power, provided your machine lasts long enough, you can still make money on it, right? Because you're you you can think of it as an auction. You're bidding against the nuclear miner who's got two cents. And a hundred percent uptime. You're bidding against them for the machine. You'll think, well, as long as there's nuclear power, theoretically, they should always buy it first, right? Uh, but, but uh, so they're going to bid up that price. But as long as you're as long as you're supplying ASICs, you'll keep making ASICs until all the ASICs are sold above the cost of production, right? So I, I'm not convinced it's a zero sum game between uh, high uptime and low uptime. Here's how I see it. I see it as there are trade-offs as a miner. One of these you've brought up is efficiencies of scale versus the advantages that only come with distribution. So we all know that data centers are more efficient, uh, you, particularly in repairs. You don't you don't have to travel to repair. Uh, you, you have one giant uh, building and you just scoot your ladder down yeah, and grab the machine scale, on. Yeah. Economies of scale, right? That's a, an advantage to you know the big data center stage to Ali. Ali's stage of history, but you 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 can't scale heat uh, because we produce a lot of heat with very few machines. This is incredibly dense uh, transformer of of of, of uh, electrical energy into heat, and we just don't have buyers of heat who need that much heat, right? So you have okay, do I take advantage of the economies of scale and forego the ability to sell my heat, or do I distribute, get this additional revenue stream, but sacrifice economies of scale? That's one trade-off. I mean, here's another one. Some cheap energy is distributed. So again, you have, uh, I've got cheap pockets of energy uh, because of, say, curtailed solar, but it's small. Uh, is that price worth the sacrificing the scale, the, the economies of scale that I give up? Right? Uh, and here's another one. Here's another trade-off. Uptime versus price. So uh, I, I think your example of, of nuclear being two cents is interesting. You know, that's so talent is paying for, uh, for, for nuclear on that one project, and that's an amazing price with 99% uptime. But how much of that is available? 
how much two cents a kilowatt hour power in the world is available with 99% uptime. So here's how I see see it. Of course, if you have if you're a miner and you have a choice of whether to mine with Ali uh, and and say two cents, but you get you 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 get I don't know, let's say sixty percent uptime batteries and solar, or with uh, on a nuclear facility with ninety nine percent uptime and also the same rate, you're going to choose the nuclear facility. But how many nuclear facilities are selling power to miners for two cents a kilowatt hour? Uh, precious few, I think. Maybe just that one. Uh, because because when I've heard uh, the prices quoted from other nuclear uh, facilities in the U.S., they're much much higher, like north of eight cents. You know, north of eight cents is the number that I've been hearing. So I think it's like y- you you got to think about these two factors: uptime and price. Of course, given matching price, you'll take the spot with higher uptime. But there will come a point where you find a lower uptime price uh, lower uptime source of electricity that is cheaper and the downtime will be worth the trade off you know provided the depreciation isn't enough so it's just a question of how much and if you don't if you're thinking like it'll never be profitable like okay let's go negative let's is there a negative price of energy <laughs> you yeah, know what i mean absolutely. you'd be willing where is that point there must be some point where you're like okay i will give up that uptime for that price and, and if you don't like it with solar, you can just think about going from 99% to 90%. And right, of course, there's a trade-off. So this, this can't be categorical. It's a question of degree. And then uh, I, I think I'm actually, you know, to push back on the devil's advocacy, I'm super optimistic because I think actually two cents, even even though that's a great price right now in the markets, is not as cheap as we're as we're going to be seeing, uh, particularly for the kinds of of of, of uh, Solar that Bitcoin is ultimately going to be buying, uh, and and this this is like ultimately uh, ultimately it's better to use power than not to use it. If you can, I mean, if you can make Bitcoin out of power, it's better to do that than to curtail it. And so, where you look at curtailed power as the alternative rather than like you know mining on nuclear, it's the question of look at it from the energy's perspective rather than the miner's perspective. <laughs> From the energy's perspective, should I just die out here in a field, or should I make money? And, and the, the energy wants to make money, and so uh, the, the the mining will flow there. And just to wrap this thought up, that's going to forever push down on uh, this global market that Ali mentioned. You know, the first global market for electricity is going to push elect uh, its its use of electricity is going to push towards the cheapest electricity that exists right now that is free and and uh, negatively priced uh, elect- electricity and, and that that energy spend which i mentioned earlier at maybe i don't know 5 billion dollars or something in that on that order that's going to go farther and farther the more the cheaper the energy is right that 5 billion dollars didn't go very far when uh, when the average energy being being bought was just um, you know the the first energy you could find when you're leaving China, but now that we're seeking out these cheap pockets of energy, and we have some patience with our ASICs, uh, and we're starting to. I mean, I'm hearing rumors, honestly, from from the field that there are big projects that are taking 50% uptime on wind farms. You know, 50% uptime. That was unthinkable in the era in which that brains piece was written. Right? 
And that trend will just continue. Well, now think about how much farther they're, they're probably paying almost nothing for that power, given that they only have it half the time and they're, they're actually operating. Think about how much power is being bought. It's more and more. So a, a, as, as Bitcoin's average price of energy page dropped, the amount of energy that the Bitcoin network is using will expand drastically with an unchanging budget, right? And that's kind of the future. That's the future that I see. So that, just to sum it up, I, I mean, I think in terms of trade-offs, I think efficiency of scale versus the advantages of being distributed, whether that's the advantages of cheap power, which you find you know, in the oil fields or on the landfills or on excess solar, uh, and w- or whether that's the alternative revenue stream of heat that are scale limited. Those, that's one of the fundamental trade-offs in my head, uh, scale. And I honestly don't know how those trade-offs will be made because I don't know exactly what the efficiencies are in scale. But I do know that 70% of miners' expense is power, the major miners. So if you can save on that 70% with cheaper energy, it's got to be worth giving up some scale. And the other thing I know is that ASICs are ASICs. In the box, they turn energy into Bitcoin at exactly the same rate. So there is a limit to the gains of scaling when you're using exactly the same hardware. right? And the other fundamental trade-off, I think, is you know uptime versus price. And I mean, it's not really an insight or news at this point to, to think about that, because I think everybody's already making that. But it, it, there was a time when Bitcoiners were really dogmatic that nothing with low uptime could ever be successful as a source of mining. And I think those days are are gone. I think we're seeing the true nature of this trade-off. And and it, and over time, my, my suggestion is that the trend we're seeing in ASIC depreciation slowing will continue. It'll get even slower, right? Because we're up against physical limits, unless we have some kind of major technological breakthrough, which is of course possible, and then it'll happen all over again. Um, but the rate of depreciation will slow, and that means that the, the 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 scales will be tilted in favor further of price over uptime. It's going to be price with uptime as an afterthought. The chips will be as they get as the technology gets more and more mature. The cost of production of chips will be less about the R&D going into the chip, and it'll be more about the actual materials in the chip, the fabrication of the chip, which is also cheaper. So the, so the CapEx side is just going to get pushed down lower and lower, and OpEx is going to go higher and higher as a percentage of the business, which means the long-term trend is it's all about energy over uptime, and it's all about energy even over efficiencies of scale. Ali, you go. Uh, yeah, tough act to follow from uh, when Troy goes on, you know, he captures everything so well. Uh, so yeah, well said, well articulated. Um, look, I think the, uh, as I take the bigger picture for myself and think about how do we fit Bitcoin mining into this whole picture and, and make it more economical so that it drives more energy infrastructure forward, it really comes down to find out to create value from the waste heat. Find out how we can not necessarily increase uptime, but maximize the output of the machines. If that makes sense. You know, to Troy's point, when these articles were written, the way the world used to think, you know, would be you install a one megawatt miner. If you run it, you know, 8,760 hours of the year, that's your 100% uptime. Uh, what we know now is that you can overclock, underclock machines based on price of electricity. And in many 
solar deployments, uh, the opportunity to overclock when surplus solar or stranded solar is available is very high. So if you're not necessarily mining 24-7, but you're overclocking and you're using zero-cost electricity, uh, that justifies some of the, uh, the uptime balance that Troy was talking about. And it's really pulling these pieces together to ultimately wrap them all into a deployment case that has a use case that almost the revenue payout of Bitcoin is, is, is an afterthought. It's integrated into the returns of a project, but it's for us, I guess the angle from solar is how do we make this happen so seamlessly, so magical that really it's about the solar project and the use case of that electricity. And now we have some waste heat that can help create a very compelling case for a building owner, a homeowner to say yes, to want to generate their own power and, and utilize it. We see that's where it's heading. That's where Bitcoin is heading for solar within the big energy picture. Again, we're not the end all be all to everything and everyone. Um, but there is a subsect there here that uh, we believe has legs and has a promise. I think um, what you were saying, uh, Troy, again, yeah, I, I totally agree. Very succinctly put. It uh, reminds me of, of why I got one of the reasons why I got into Bitcoin mining in the first place. And I think you had some touch points there as well in, in your advisory career talking about mini grids because I used to work for a mini grid uh, company. And my thing was like, OK, we have it. We have the batteries are fully charged to, in the mornings at 8 a.m. We got the sun boiling down in West Africa and nobody wants power. And we got a problem because that's all lost revenue, right? So then I went down this train of, oh, we could use um, Bitcoin mining for, for mini grids. But then you exactly arrive at this point of, can we go to all of these sites and still make a viable business case out of it? And the answer currently is likely no, right? Um, but then maybe leading into that, is the, is the further progress of Bitcoin mining and ASICs and the development on the technical side there, maybe not even smaller chips, even higher efficiency, even this, even that. Maybe the next stage going into sort of the level three argument is, can we develop ASICs that are specific for a use case, that are extremely low maintenance? Maybe ASICs that output even more heat per unit or whatever the case may be, right? Um, ASICs, as you said earlier, Ali, that that may 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 be perfectly suited to go along with solar or, or small sort of retail applications where the capex is extremely low, the hash rate is extremely low, but it, it makes sense because they can also turn on and off multiple times a day or whatever the case may be. Maybe that's sort of the next stage of of developments, not more efficiency, but more be m more um, use case specific ASICs and a large variety of technology that, that's going to come along. Um, guys, it's been an absolute blast. It, it is mandatory on this program, and I think you kind of already answered this, um, to ask you whether you think that Bitcoin is using enough electricity or not. Um, so what do you think? Does Bitcoin use enough electricity, Troy? Uh, not nearly enough electricity. I think, uh, I think it should... I think Bitcoin mining should only happen on free electricity, basically. And so how far does the budget go on free electricity? Like very far. <laughs> Ali? Uh, yeah, so the short answer is it's not using enough electricity because there's still so much waste, wasted electricity available. And we know it exists. Take a look at the negatively priced 
um, LMPs, location marginal pricing, just across the U.S. That's showing where there is wasted electricity, a mismatch of supply and demand, which in a really funny way, Bitcoin is like a mirror to us showing us, hey, you're not operating, you're not orchestrating yourselves as humans <laughs> efficiently. Bitcoin, this computer code is telling us things that I hadn't thought about before, right? As, as somebody who, you know, they gave me an engineering degree and I've been in the energy sector for, you know, 16 plus years. But we see that now and we see it through a completely different lens. And then you take one step further and you think through if you have a demand-driven uh, solution where it enables you to generate more electricity that has a hope to get us to this energy abundance mindset using Bitcoin as a pioneer species, you start to see the world in a completely different lens. And you actually start to ask yourself, all right, how can we deploy more of this stuff? Because the second order consequences of it, from what we see, are good for the world. We have highlighted beautifully how how difficult and complex the energy system is. But I think we've also beautifully highlighted how fucking early we still are, especially with respects to, to Bitcoin mining. Um, the world's currently thinking of energy as a scarce resource. It's become very clear, I think, that energy is anything else but scarce if you look into the right places. Um, guys, thank you so much for your time, for your insights, for your expertise. Give people a bit of a handoff. Where can they find more about you, uh, more about your work? Um, Ali, you go first. Um, so you can go to optimizeinfrastructure.com for our website. I'm also on Twitter uh, at Ali Chehersaz. Uh, I will spare the spelling of it, and I guess I'll point for show, show notes. Guys, look into the show notes. <laughs> show notes, it is. Troy. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me on, Jesse. I'm uh, at the Tro Crow uh, at on Twitter. That's kind of where I. That's where I've been doing my thinking aloud and learning aloud and making mistakes. Playing piano um, as well, and playing the piano. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I'll, I mean, I just want to give Ali one more plug here while I'm on because I end up doing this in private conversation all the time. Uh, you know, people, people contact me with uh, information like i know a guy who has uh such and such power available um uh, they're connected with a solar um a solar operation and uh i inevitably just introduce them to ali or send them ali's way or right that's my go-to move so um Yeah, if you have one of these things, like a project that's in the works, you don't know whether Bitcoin mining would make sense. Um, Ali has, uh, you know, ad advice and actually software that can help you with your question. I cannot, from the seat of my pants, actually calculate whether Bitcoin mining would make sense where you are or what it would take. Uh, I'm just a philosopher. This guy is an engineer. And so if you contact me, this is what I will probably do. Just point you Ollie's, in Ali's direction. Talk to the man. Do you have any yeah. um, point of contact or, or website or whatever for the conference in, in Madeira? Oh, my God. I should have this on, on, on hand. Um, Google. Uh, yeah, it's called Bitcoin Atlantis. Atlantis. Oh, wow. So I okay. think it's BitcoinAtlantis.com. But if you just look up Bitcoin Atlantis, you'll see the 
website for the conference. You know, it's still early days. It's in March. I don't even have all of my program pinned down yet, um, but it's going to be really cool. And we should trade notes, Jesse, because I want to see if there are people I'm 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 missing. And uh... we will, guys. My my face is hurting from smiling. Um... To anybody listening, this is a value for value podcast. If you didn't get any value out of this, I don't know what you were doing. I hope you weren't like mowing the lawn and only hearing 10% of what we're talking about. If you did do that, then rewind this and listen from the top. Um, go to Fountain, go to Breeze. There is a Q&A section as well. Um, if you have questions to the guys uh, for myself, make sure that you ask those and engage on Twitter as well, of course. All the links will be in the show notes. Um, I really hope you were able to take something away and didn't know all of this already. Uh, if you did, then I want to speak to you. And yeah, Bitcoin does not consume enough electricity. That's my take. I don't think I've heard any different answers so far. Until next time. And yeah, cheers. Thank you.